Welcome to the Torah Guide, a podcast where we explore how the Hebrew Bible is all about Jesus and meditate on what it has to say to us. I'm your host, Aaron Dranoff. Why did God choose the Jewish people? Now, I'm not asking why did God pick the Jewish people instead of some other people. That's a good question that's worth pondering. But today we're asking, why did God choose any people at all? He raised up a man, promised him a family, and then cultivated that family into a nation, a nation that he'd then partner with in a covenant agreement that's the center of the Torah story. Why did God do all that? Now, we're letting the Torah speak for itself which means before we come up with any explanation that makes sense to us, we're going to just let the story speak for itself and see if it explains why God did all that. And it does. So let's summarize what we've covered over the past two weeks first. The Jewish people are only introduced to the story after two things are made clear. First, the human heart is totally evil. Everyone is bad. Even the people who seem like exceptions ultimately repeat Adam's sin. Second, God is determined to cleanse the evil of the world, violence and suffering, all of that, without destroying humanity. And I think the natural question is, how can God wipe out evil without destroying humanity if people are the ones spreading evil? That's exactly the question that Genesis 1 through 11 wants to raise, but Genesis 1 through 11 is the introduction of the story, not the climax and not the resolution. So it's a question that the rest of the biblical story will answer. So after we see humanity unify against God in the Tower of Babylon incident, we finally see the first step forward in God's rescue plan, and that's the Jewish people. When God called the father of the Jewish people, Abram, he promised to make Abram a great nation with a great name. And remember, this happens directly after the cosmic failure at Babylon, so it stands out as the inversion of Babylon, where Babylon made a name for themselves. Now God is calling this nobody and making a name for him. But not only is Abram the inversion of what happened at Babylon, Abram is introduced as the solution to the plot conflict from the beginning that Adam and Eve started. And the key to seeing that is following the language that the story's been using. Now, you might not have realized it, but the story's been loading keywords with story-specific meanings. And two of those words that are now loaded with significance and meaning are blessing and curse. So it'd be a good idea to go back through Genesis 1 through 11 and notice, or even highlight in your Bible, every occurrence of the words blessing or curse. And just watch the meaning pop you'll see that the authors have been trying to link both words to a set of ideas. Just to give you a taste here, after God created the sea creatures and the birds of the sky, he blessed them and they multiplied abundantly, filling each of their respective realms. Then, when he created humanity, he blessed them and told them to multiply, fill the earth, subdue, and rule his creation. The word blessing is not only being associated with generally positive things, but it's linked to the idea of God giving life and multiplication, and even the authority to rule or steward that life. And he also blessed the seventh day, the only day that didn't close with the repeated pattern, and there was evening and there was morning. So apparently, the seventh day was meant to be a day with no end. It's the only day out of the seven of creation 
that isn't marked by an ending. And during the seventh day, God and humanity were at peace. The relationship between God and humanity was peaceful and life-giving. God provided for humanity every good thing that it needed for an abundant life. Trees that were good for eating, and even given the man, when he was alone, a wife. So just by following the use of this word in the first chapters, we get the idea that blessing has to do with abundance and the spreading of life, and even the responsibility to steward that abundance in life. On the flip side, curse means the opposite. It's loaded with the opposite meaning. When Adam and Eve sinned, God cursed the ground because of them. So what does the ground bring afterwards? Not life. God said, Cursed is the ground because of you. With hard labor you shall eat from it. All the days of your life, both thorns and thistles, it shall grow for you. Yet you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The ground that used to give life in the garden is now the source of death. Not only did the curse bring death, but the peaceful relationship with God was severed. God sent the humans away after their sin. Now that these words have been loaded with meaning, they're meant to pop out to us as we read the story, and they're supposed to guide us along. You could certainly understand the Jewish people's place in the story even if you were to miss the significance of these words, but these words are almost like exclamation points, so it's good to follow how the author uses them as he tries to get our attention. So initially, God blessed creation, but Adam brought a flood of curses to creation that we read about in Genesis 3. Then, God alludes to his future rescue plan being through one of Eve's descendants. Then when we get to Abraham, God promises him a flood of blessings. So a string of curses came to all creation because of Adam, but a string of blessings is promised through Abraham's family. God is bringing life or blessing where death is spreading through a curse. Abraham's family is the next step in God's resolution to the curse. God said to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God raises Abraham up and makes him into a great nation, but unlike Babylon, it's not for his own elevation or for his own sake. It's actually the opposite of the Tower of Babylon. God raises Abraham up and gives him a great name so that he will be a blessing to all the other nations, including Babylon. God promised to Abraham from the beginning that all the families of the earth, or literally in Hebrew, all the families of the ground would be blessed by him. Remember that ground that was cursed and brings death? Now God blesses the families of the ground through Abraham's family. The fact that this is the reasoning from the beginning of the Jewish people's origin story is way too important to overlook. But in case we're tempted to brush it aside as poetic or unimportant or something like that, the authors remind us that this is their purpose in every generation of the patriarchs. And again, with the people of Israel as a whole. In Genesis 18, 18, God said to himself, Since Abraham will certainly become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Then God repeats the plan to Abraham for a second time in Genesis 22, 18. He said, In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Then when Abraham died, God continued the promise through his son, Isaac, in Genesis 26, 4-5. 
by saying, By your descendants, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Then after Isaac, God continues the same plan with his son Jacob in 28.14. Now this promise to Jacob is a really cool moment because it doesn't only carry the promise forward that God's going to use Abraham's family to undo Adam's curse. It also emphasizes the idea that it's the opposite of the Tower of Babylon. Remember last week that in Babylon, the tower had its head, or in Hebrew, rosh, in the heavens? Here, when the promise is reiterated to Abraham's grandson Jacob, the passage is oversaturated with the word rosh. Jacob puts his rosh on a rock, then he sees a stairway, or a ladder in some translations, with its rosh in the heavens. Just like the Tower of Babylon with its rosh in the heavens, but now God, Yahweh, is standing above the stairway with its rosh in the heavens. And he reiterates the promise he made to Abraham and Isaac to Jacob now. So unlike Babylon elevating themselves up to heaven in Genesis 11, God creates a passageway down from heaven and also back up to him. And it's not just for one nation's benefit like Babylon was. This is for all the nations because of the promise that he reiterates to Jacob here. Then, remember that rock that Jacob put his rosh on in the beginning of the passage? After Jacob saw all this, he stands that rock up and poured oil on its rosh. He anointed it. And he calls the place where he saw the staircase and anointed a rock, he calls it the house of God. This passage is oversaturated with the word rosh to show you that this is the inversion of the last time the word rosh or head was used oddly and stuck out to you in Babylon's origin story. So the point of this, God was not pleased with the family of Babylon's effort to unify in an attempt to elevate themselves, but he does elevate Abraham's family in order to elevate or bless all families. Now, last week I pointed to Daniel chapter 2 as a moment later in Babylon's history when someone else, the king of Babylon, has a vision of heaven. He sees a giant human with its head, its rosh, in the heavens. Now, ultimately, that statue crumbles. But just like how God promises blessing through Jacob's stairway, which is the inversion of the Tower of Babylon, in Daniel chapter 7, there's the inversion of the Babylonian king's vision, where Daniel, a descendant of Jacob, sees a vision when he's laying down. Now, in Daniel's vision, God gave power to another human, not someone who goes up to heaven, but someone who comes down from heaven. Now, I'll let you study this some more, but the author of Daniel seems to paint the chapter 2 temporary human statue as the Tower of Babylon, and the permanent human in chapter 7 more like Jacob's stairway. This person in Daniel 7 is described as one like a son of man, And it's no coincidence that Jesus' favorite title for himself was Son of Man. And it's no coincidence that he also claims to be the stairway that Jacob saw, John 1.51. So all this is to say that God didn't choose the people of Israel for their own sake. God chose Abraham, a new Adam or new human, to use Abraham's family as the inversion of the Babylonian family. Not to elevate their family alone, but to elevate or bless all the families of the ground that had been cursed through the first Adam. And ultimately, that will be achieved by the stairway that Jacob saw, which Daniel connects to the Son of Man who descends from heaven. So, we have to see the Jewish people as a subplot. Now, 
we do that without diminishing the love that God has for them. If we're just being real, the Bible's really long. It's huge. And most of the Bible is about the Jewish people, so it can be easy to get lost as we're reading and forget why we're reading about the Jewish people at all. But this is why. The Jewish people are introduced as part of the cosmic restoration that God hinted at in Genesis 3.15. The Jewish people become an inseparable part of solving the plot conflict from the introduction to the story in Genesis 1-11, through but we can't get so focused on the subplots that start after the introduction that we forget the purpose of the subplot. It's critical to remember that Genesis 1-11 through is the introduction to the Torah when there was no people of Israel, no Abraham, and no Jewish nation yet. The Jewish people were introduced as the solution to Adam's curse. I do want to bring something to your attention that I think is important to note. As a reading, we're going to see a lot, a lot of failures from the Jewish people in the Hebrew Bible, and we're going to see a lot of rebuke towards them. Most of them repeatedly commit heinous acts of disobedience, idolatry, and all sorts of covenant breaking. But I hope that you notice it all happens after Genesis 1-11 through has already demonstrated that evil is a humanity-wide problem. Remember in Genesis 6 and 8, on both ends of the Noah story, we find out that the human heart is evil from its youth. Now, the reason we see so much of it coming from Israel is because Israel is the family that the Bible zooms in on. I bring this up because, unfortunately, throughout the past two millennia, people have misused the Hebrew Bible to stir up hate against the Jewish people. It's still a widespread problem today to imagine that the Jewish people are somehow uniquely evil because of all the failures we see in the Hebrew Bible. Actually, the other day, in real time, I posted a video on the Torah Guide's TikTok page about the problem of anti-Semitism, and almost all of the comments are anti-Semitic people trying to use the Bible to justify why anti-Semitism is okay. It's, it's a tragic reality that is still around today. But the biblical point is that even the people who God partners with fail. Evil is a human problem. The Jewish people just so happen to be the case study in the Hebrew Bible. The Jewish people hold a special and hopeful place in the biblical story. They're the first step in the resolution to the curse of death and separation from God that began with Adam. So that, even though our hearts were fully corrupt, God works through the family of Israel to restore the relationship that was severed and undo the curse of death with the blessing of life. Their role is to be part of undoing the problem of evil that started with the first humans and permeates all of humanity. Let's read scripture together. Genesis 12, 1-3 Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, and from your relatives, and from your father's house, to the land which I will show you. And I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Genesis 12, 1-3 Let's meditate on these lessons. I'm going to ask you some questions and take the time you need to think about them and go ahead and pause if you need more time. First question, what is one way that your community is going through suffering 
brokenness or, or maybe even death. Next question. Remember that the God of the Bible doesn't leave us stranded in our suffering. He makes a way for blessing, even if we're the ones bringing the curse. How might God want to bring blessing to what your community is going through? Lastly, Jesus is our hope. He is our way to restoration, and he's compassionate towards all of our hardship and suffering. Take a moment to ask Jesus for healing and restoration in your life and in your community. Pray with me. God, thank you for showing us that you care about our suffering. Let it become clear to us how you want to bring blessing through the hardship in our lives. We trust that you will work it out for good and we ask that you'll look on us with compassion and bring restoration and healing where we need it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Torah Guide Podcast. If you want to meditate on this lesson some more, Check out the video and reading plan that go along with it at thetorahguide.com. The Torah Guide is a totally crowdfunded nonprofit that makes all sorts of resources to help you read the Hebrew Bible and discover Jesus, including this podcast, animated videos, devotionals, reading plans, and more. And we're able to do all of it because of generous people like you. If you want to be a part of helping people discover how the Hebrew Bible points to Jesus, you can make a one-time gift or become a monthly supporter at thetorahguide.com. Thanks for being a part of this.